0: Hi everybody, it's Defend Molly for Freedom. Aid Radio. I have the highly esteemed Gill Gillery uh, on the line here to talk about parenting. Uh, this is a second part in a series on libertarian parenting styles. If that is a valid way of talking about it, I hope and think that it is. Uh, so thank you so much for taking the time uh, to to have a chat. And um, uh, I was wondering if you could just tell the listeners who may not be familiar with you uh, a little bit about yourself and. Uh, uh, how you rose to this stellar level of prominence within the libertarian community.
1: All right. Well, I don't know about that.
0: Sorry, is that too big um, a buildup? No, I start well, you know, hey.
1: Um, <laughs> no, I, I, uh, I ran on the Libertarian Party ticket for U.S. Congress in 2000 and 2002, years ago. Um, I've I've written articles for com and Anti-State.com and StrikeTheRoot.com and org and uh, I'm the podcast editor for Libertarian Papers, and uh, I'm probably best known for the research that I've done in a building a real fleshed-out business plan for a Rothbardian home defense company, which uh, this research has taken the form of a series of academic papers that I've written on uh, subjects like um, the legal landscape, the uh for subscription patrol and restitution what the laws are and how it how it constrains or um, allows for uh, certain forms of private defense uh as well as uh, things like uh actuarial analysis of uh crimes severities and frequencies and uh the types of reserving models that you'd have to put together um, to to successfully insure um, against various crime events.
0: Hey, I'd love to interview you on that at some point because I I've, <laughs> uh, I've put some thought into that. Of course, it's one of the the questions that voluntarists get: is uh, how can we have national defense without without the state? Which, of course, is begging the question that we get national defense with the state, which I would completely disagree with. But uh, I would love to interview you on that. Is there a place that people can get a hold of that stuff online?
1: Uh, there is. I have a little. A little site, it's a Google, Google sites, so it's like sites.google.com slash Gilgillery, or if you just Google Gilgillery, uh, you'll, you'll find it, it's one of the top hits for my name. Right.
0: I'll, uh, I'll put the uh, link in the video and the podcast as well, because people should really familiarize themselves, if they're interested in this, and it's a fascinating topic, so.
1: You get but two people a, if you a, Google Gilgillery. It's, it's me or an MMA promoter. So uh, it's the libertarian guy, not the MMA promoter.
0: So um, just just click on the picture without the tattoo. Uh, I think that's assuming that's uh, that, that you have none that are invisible. So, so uh, we were talking just a little bit before we started recording about the approaches that we would like to take, or that I'd like to take, and we sort of agreed that uh, an interesting approach would be to talk about your experiences uh, as a parent. You've written, I think, quite a moving and beautiful. Uh, essay to your daughter which uh, i think is um, i don't know if it's available online it's not particularly important but i thought the themes in it were very uh, were very uh, beautiful i mean not to sound too uh, <laughs> too softy gooey but uh, it was quite lovely and uh, she's obviously a very a very lucky girl to have you as a dad and i was wondering if you could tell me uh, did libertarianism come first and then parenting stuff flowed was it sort of simultaneous did the parenting stuff come before the libertarian stuff how did that develop for you
1: uh yeah it it I I think I was a libertarian before I was a parent. Um I I became an anarchist after I was a parent. Um which I, to me all the anarchists I know it's a it's a uh, it's a moment where you finally let go of the state and uh, so I remember it well. Um,
0: I'm sorry was that a particular moment that, that you remember because that sounds quite interesting.
1: It was. It was. In fact I was reading this was back in the the heady days of uh I think the Mises.org website was maybe all of ten pages, you know, um, and and I, I happened to be reading um, the Ethics of Liberty, and the the weight of the argument finally clicked for me, and uh, you know everybody has kind of their last vestige that they were worried about, right, and uh, some people are worried about. Uh, state security you know or police or national defense or various things i was of course worried about uh welfare programs so that was my my last thing that i was worried about which is kind of laughable to me today to think about that but and i i couldn't contain myself i didn't know what to do and i i realized that the um the Ethics of Liberty was published by the Mises Institute, so I figured, well, I'll call them. So I called, and I asked to talk to Jeff Tucker, and I said, uh, is this Jeff Tucker? And he said, yes. I said, my name's Gil Gillery, <laughs> and I've just become an anarchist. I'm so excited. <laughs> and he says... Uh, He says, you know, when that happened to me, I went up to Murray Rothbard and I said, (laughs) Murray, you know, I've become an anarchist. And uh, and Murray said, congratulations. And so that's what he told me. He said, congratulations. Congratulations.
0: Right.
1: So that was my that was my glorious moment. It was wonderful.
0: Beautiful. 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 So did uh, these principles, did they flow into your parenting? Was that sort of a conscious decision? Did you sort of review? Because very few people who become anarchists were raised in that fashion. So there is a certain amount of, oh, let's just say rejigging that needs to go on. Uh, Was that a conscious process for you where you decided to take some of the principles that you accepted from a political standpoint uh, and apply them to parenting? Was it some more was it more? haphazard? How did that develop?
1: I think well um you know and everybody has their own grounding for rights and, and libertarianism and um I am very taken by virtue ethics and um I I like uh, Jan Narvison's work which is contractarian in nature which is not at all social contract theory people get those confused but I I think in terms of virtue and um and I think virtue is kind of a key because when we say things like um, um, one, one things that one thing that libertarians do is they say that uh, the state should um, practice virtue like individuals do that is we shouldn't steal and um, we shouldn't prevent others from exercising their rights to um, to contract and and uh, uh, these sorts of things and and when you have that mindset that you you have a, a certain rigor to the the moral standards that you place on behavior you start asking to of yourself um, how can i be virtuous and what does that mean and and when i raise a child and and i want my child to be virtuous um how do I get kids to be virtue, virtuous and not paper over their moral lapses? And I think a lot of that has to do with modeling virtue and, and morally behaving yourself, uh, because I think moral suasion only works when the persuader is virtuous.
0: Right, and you actually need very little. Then, uh, at least that's been my experience. You need very little persuasion if you're modeling, because children are such natural mimics. That's how culture, in a sense, reproduces. They're such natural mimics that they're going to copy whatever you do. Uh, and uh, so, if if you already have that foundation that's transmitting itself, uh, I guess visually and and uh, empirically, then you need fewer arguments.
1: Right, and you know, I was no, I was uh, thinking about this. Um, uh, mentioning Mises.org in the early days, uh, I, I, felt very lucky because they would post, uh, the back issues of the Journal of Libertarian Studies and Left and Right and all of these things almost on a day by day basis. And so, you know, a, a volume of the JLS would go up. And, uh, even though it had been published years before and I hadn't read it at the time, uh, as they were posting them to the internet, I, it all out at work and I'd read it on the bus and I was all excited um, and and uh, it occurred to me there's a there's an article that was reprinted in left and right on the the moral instruction of children by Herbert Spencer and uh, I was reminded of it because uh, in the previous episode that you had with Stefan Kinsella you were talking about um, how do we how do we teach our children right and wrong? And uh, Herbert Spencer's answer, which I think is is quite simple, and uh, and Lysander Spooner talks about this as well in uh, in his works, is that you expose the child to the the consequences of their actions, so that. Um, and of course, I, you know, I don't want to sound mean when I say things like this uh, and and context is very important, but we might pick an example of um, if you don't get ready in time to go to the movie, then you don't go because there's a certain time at which the movie starts um, and and if you're late, then uh, you know the curtain is up, and that's it. Um, or if uh, if toys have been sprawled around the the house and someone steps on it and breaks a toy well now you have a broken toy um and and we don't just replace toys because um it got broken uh, so these sorts of things um trying to expose children to the consequences of their actions and 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 not to not to punish bad behavior but to um to show them the consequences of the bad behavior, so that they understand rationally why why these laws or these virtues exist, and and why we don't do these things.
0: Right, right. No, and I think that's I think what you're talking about is is the great challenge of moral instruction, which is to not be the finger wagging external authority figure that the child or or the student or the citizen just conforms to because of the power disparity, but rather to attempt to have the child internalize uh, moral rules so that... Because that, of course, you're not going to be around forever whacking your finger at your child, so you have to at some point start to get them to develop that kind of internalization of these rules so that it's not just obedience to an external authority figure, but something that they understand the value of internally.
1: Right, and I would also say that... um, Unlike many other political theories, you know, uh, libertarians uh, embrace irrational ethics, and and so if we truly believe that ethics are grounded by reason, uh, then we should be able to demonstrate through reason to our children what ethical principles they should adhere to.
0: Yeah, that is something that I, I think is is tragically missing, and I, I fault philosophers no small amount for not providing parents with a rational proof of secular ethics, because without that, if you don't have a good reason for why the child should do X, Y, and Z, you are almost invariably going to fall back on the imposition of authority, or the withdrawal of affection, or physical punishment, or something. If you don't have a good reason, you inevitably have to exaggerate your authoritarianism just to get the child to obey to something that doesn't make sense. Whereas if you have ethics philosophical ethics that makes sense uh that you you don't sort of have to say well because i said so or because that's just the way things are or that's how we do things here then you can actually give the child good reasons and that of course uh, means that the child that you don't have to rely on authority because you've got a good arguments.
1: You know i'm 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 reminded of you know you were asking me you know what came first the libertarianism or the the parenting and um, maybe what came first was a, um, a kind of scholarly approach to to these things. I, I'm reminded that when I when I became a parent, I was searching quite vigorously for books on how to raise children. And um, I I kind of have this rule of thumb that I try not to read nonfiction books that are uh, in the social sciences that are less than 50 years old. It has to be at least 50 years old and proven itself. Right. Um, so, so you don't want to get
0: uh, caught up in the current fad and right, right.
1: Yeah, yeah, you know I mean there are exceptions to these things but uh, generally speaking so I found this book um, on this obscure little website, it was a home economics website and there was this there's a book from 1912 or 1916 sometime in that time frame called The Moral Instruction of Children by this guy by the name of Felix Adler and um, I thought, well, how how quaint is that? You know, nowadays no one would say, oh, moral instruction is an important part of raising a child. But back then they thought, oh, this is something that's very important. And I, I picked up the book and I, I dug into it and I read it. And I was quite happily surprised because I think with a title like The Moral Instruction of Children, you would expect it to be um, moralizing. You know how it's to how preach you serve to children. The
0: Empire best young man.
1: Right. Yes, yeah, exactly. And but that's not what it was at all. It was quite interesting. It was about um, how do we learn things? Uh, how do we learn morals? And um, his answer, generally speaking, was we learn it through examples. And he said the principal examples that we have are literature. And so he had um, an age-based discussion, and this was aimed at at public school teachers, actually, about how to instruct morals in children by um, talking about Aesop's fables at a certain age. And at a certain age, uh, things like Bible stories are useful. Uh, Bible stories are harder than Aesop's fables because usually in an Aesop's fable, you have one moral. Whereas in a Bible story, there might be two or three, three things going on. And so you have maybe two or three different things to talk about in a Bible story. And then you have classical literature, like the Odyssey or the Iliad. Um, and, and each one of those episodes, um, it, it allows for discussion and reflection on, uh, on fairness and, and on ethics and, and on virtue itself on, you know, was it a, was it a magnanimous thing to do X, Y, or Z? Um, and so um, I was I was really quite impressed with that book. And I I later picked up another book called The Moral of the Story, and it's just a book filled with stories specifically designed to challenge your moral thinking. Hmm.
0: Yeah, well, certainly uh, children seem to learn best through, through narrative followed by discussion rather than syllogism followed by exam- cross-examination, which is a, sometimes a shame for us more philosophically inclined people, but it is something that, that seems to work much better.
1: Now, well, and it's, it's okay. all the way back to Socrates, because, you know, he got in trouble going around asking people, well, what is justice and how do you know that? And, and what is the good? And, oh, how do you know that? Um, he's just it's asking penetrating uh, questions.
0: It's always a, it's always a, sort of struck me that any philosopher who's not being accused of corrupting uh, people is is probably not doing his job and uh, <laughs> that seems to be basic in the job description. Now, what kind of uh, conflicts and conflict resolution uh, has this brought about in your relationship with your uh, with your daughter?
1: Let's see, what's the question again?
0: What sort of uh, so? What sort of conflicts have arisen? Uh, as there's conflicts in every personal relationship, of course, parent-child, husband-wife, oh, yeah. and so on. So, what sort of conflicts have come up, and and how has this approach uh, helped you resolve uh, these sorts of conflicts?
1: Yeah, and of course, the types of conflicts change as the child ages. So, my daughter is now almost twelve years old. Um, so, um, nowadays. You know, there's the question of conflict, and then there's then there's true conflict. And um, I have to say, at this age, she really doesn't present any substantial conflicts. It's it's a nice confluence of. I I think she's learned quite well to to respect other people, Um, and she also has a very um, courteous and, and giving demeanor personality. Um, so I, I don't really have that many problems with my daughter. Most of the time, it centers on things like um, uh, procrastination of homework, as an example. Um, I thought it was interesting you guys brought up homework uh, in uh, the, the previous mm-hmm. podcast you did on this topic. Uh, <clears throat> and it's, it's not that I, th- this is one of these fine lines where... You know, my role as a parent, I think, is to shepherd my child into adulthood. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't, there's a, there's a fine line be say, between saying, you know, you really need to do this and just kind of letting things happen and letting the consequences work themselves out. You know, when she has, say, I'm thinking back to last term, she had, three big projects that she had to get done and they were all due the same week and so I counseled her on many occasions that she should really um, do one of the projects a few weeks early and then do another project the following weekend and that way in the crunch weekend before these all three are due she only has one project to do. Um, That didn't quite work out and she ended up staying staying up some late nights and uh, my hope is that through these experiences she's she's learning more and more how to how to apportion her time to the tasks that she uh has committed herself to do.
0: Well, Jan, so. yeah, I, I think it's also important I, I don't know about your particular work habits. Um I, I think mine are fairly good, but there have certainly been times in my life where I have definitely been backed into a corner like that when it comes to getting yeah. things done. So I think there is also, I've always tried to, to avoid in my dealings with children and, and also with my listeners, which is not to, to equate the two, but, uh, to, to, to remind uh, them that I have an issue with it too. I think every human being has an issue with procrastination because we're naturally energy conserving uh, beings. And, and so, uh, to, to, to remember that everybody has a problem with it and not to be, I'm perfect and you need to improve that that, that sort of stuff was yes. around a lot when I was a kid and has and never been particularly motivating.
1: Oh yeah, yeah, I, and I agree. And and the 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 art there is to, you know, um, give advice and encourage adherence to good habits uh, without nagging, and then and then maybe when something goes wrong to talk about it later, but not in an accusing manner and and not at the right time, you know, at the right time and not at the wrong time. You don't I don't told say, oh, you this was going to happen, and if you don't, that's stare, right.
0: <laughs> right. let me be. See the I told you? right, right,
1: yeah.
0: right. No, I, I think that's right, and and I think it it really underestimates children's intelligence. They're already t- saying to themselves, "I told you so," because they know. I mean, whenever you say to someone, "I told you so," they're already telling themselves louder than you ever could. So,
1: right, and and it's interesting. You know, my, I have two daughters, uh, one who's seven and one who's eleven. And um, my older daughter, uh, another thing we struggle with is, you know, I try to teach her that she needs to be easier on her younger daughter, uh, her her younger sister, because she's at a different stage of moral development. Um, She interrupts people who are talking more often. She um, is, you know, maybe a little reckless with other people's property. You Um, mean the, the younger daughter? The younger daughter, right, right. right. and and so um, it's a very interesting, and and I think this ties into some of the insights of the Montessori system, or or just the non-age segregated notion of uh, even homeschooling or unschooling, which is that you have different people of different abilities that are out and about, and you have to understand the limitations that certain people have. And accept them for their flaws because none of us are, are exactly perfect. Well, I, I think that's I'm true. I, 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 I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh Well, I was going to say I was reminded of um, a, an experience I had uh, here in Houston. We have a, um, a a nonprofit called Leisure Learning, and it's just a, a nonprofit where they offer all sorts of courses on things like ceramics and knitting and language learning and all sorts of things you might do on your spare time. And I was going to offer a course at one point at this uh, place and uh, to offer a course you have to take a little orientation course. And so I was at the orientation course and the guy who founded it and who uh, runs it was uh, giving the orientation. And he noted that on the forms that uh, before enrolling in the, the courses, that they offer a substantial discount to seniors and the handicapped. And he asked around, he said, uh, by a show of hands or, uh, to, to ask people that are in the, um uh, orientation, why was it that he made this, uh, offer? And a lot of people thought, oh, maybe it was legislated, or maybe he had a soft heart for uh, the seniors or for handicapped, and that he wanted uh, these people to have access to to his courses at a discount. And, and And he said, no, none of that is true. He said, part of learning is 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 experiencing life with a broad array of people around you. And understanding what life is like for them. And um, I thought that was an incredibly perceptive um, method by which to instruct people. Um, I, I remember after that experience, about a year later, I became good friends with a man who was eighty five years old. And uh, I would go over to his house and talk to him and everything and, I got a real appreciation for the physical limitations of what it means to be 85 years old. Um it's, it's a little different. Um right. and, uh, so anyway, uh, that's a, a divergence, but, um, I I think that in, in raising kids, we, we should expose them to this, uh, broad array of different types of people that have different abilities um especially you know my kids get into the uh gifted and talented program right and so they're in these classes where all the kids read very well and they all uh, have very good families and um uh, they live well you know I'm, I'm not a rich guy or anything but uh I, i'm certainly not hurting for money and uh And there are people at her school for which that's true. And, uh, having, having exposure to the types of challenges that other people face is, uh, I think it's an important thing to understand, uh, in, in getting on in the world.
0: I think that's right. And I I think modeling that kind of empathy is so important. And I, I, I have to remind myself, I'm, I'm not, I'm fairly patient with my daughter, but I do have to remind myself, that when she gets uh, frustrated, because she's at, at this age, 18 months, she, she can run, she can jump, she can all of that. But she she you obviously can't, half the things that she wants to do, she can't do for herself. Like she likes playing in the sink, but, you know, we have to see. So I'm, I, I'm not always able to sort of sit with her for half an hour while she plays with the bubbles in the sink. And she likes taking baths, but she can't run the bath herself. She likes going swimming, but, uh, you know, she, she can't initiate these things. And I try to remember, I said, I, I try to say to myself, What would it be like? How would my mood be if at least half the things I really wanted to do during the day or really needed during the day were locked away and other people who were very distracted had the keys? Like I would slowly go insane after a while. Oh, I need my iPod. Oh, it's exactly. locked away. I got to go ask for these keys. Oh, I need my uh, my computer. Oh, the the power cord is locked away, and I have to go and ask these people for key. Like I would just go insane. I mean, if I can't find my glasses for five minutes, I get grumpy, right? And and so it's yeah, not so right. much it's not so much that she gets frustrated. What's amazing to me is how little she gets frustrated, uh, given given all of these constraints in what she wants to do versus what she's capable of doing.
1: Right. Right, I agree. I, I worked with, I'm, I'm a chemical engineer by day and, uh, uh, for a while I, I worked with a, uh, control systems engineer who was handicapped and, uh, you know, it was an ordeal for him just to go to a meeting, you know, leaving his desk and putting everything that he needed for the meeting in his little knapsack that went on the behind of the, um, uh, of the wheelchair and then getting over to the to the meeting and everything and uh and just like you said you know you're you're raising a child and and they have these limitations that are so foreign to us as adults now um, and uh, uh but but getting into the um, the other side of this is that there're certain constraints that are um that are artificial in a way. Um, as an example, my, my daughter is more or less conditioned to ask me for permission to do various things. And uh, I think, uh, you and Stefan Kinsella talked about this, which is, uh, the, the right frame of mind to cultivate is to try to say yes to everything and mm-hmm. to, to really try to say, you know, it, Am I saying no because it's just inconvenient for me, or am I? Is is there a real, legitimate reason to to say no to this request? But also to cultivate in our children um, a, a a kind of reaching toward um, deciding when and whether they should ask permission for certain types of things. You know, as a child. Uh, great, grows older. I mean, it was a very big deal in our household, um, when we made the decision that we could let our kid go outside and play by herself. How old
0: was she when uh, you made that decision?
1: Uh, four years old. Now we live on the end of a dead, we live on a dead end street. So traffic is less of a concern and she's not the type to run off. So, you know, a lot of these are individual considerations. Um, but I think that it was a very freeing element for her to know that uh, she could go in the front yard and skip rope or ride her big wheel around or something like that. And, you know, she was kind of on her own. And... Right. Uh, so I, I think um, that that's a, that's a worthwhile goal. I mean, I, again, I think it's back to what's the goal of parenting, and in my view, the goal of parenting is is to shepherd someone into adulthood, and uh, we shouldn't be afraid of uh, getting them there as as fast as they arrive. And you know, it's it's. It's fits and starts, and sometimes it's it's wow. Suddenly, she's doing this, and then sometimes it's gee, you know, um, why can't I ever go to the mall by myself? Okay, well, you know, you're not quite old enough yet, and it's it's a it's it's a difficult uh, difficult set of decisions to make.
0: It is because you you want your children to experience risk, but not dangerous risk. Very right? Much. I mean, you you want them to skin their knee, not you know lose an arm. So, I certainly understand that. I th- I was just talking about this with um, with my wife the other day. How. I mean, when I was a kid, I have a distinct and clear memory of being five or six years old and just biking all over the neighborhood and going up with my friends. And and now, I mean, this you know the the cliche of the helicopter parent, which I can completely understand. Even though the world is a lot safer now for kids in many ways than it ever was when we were kids. I mean the the toys are safer. Uh, I live on a street that's uh there's uh, no through traffic, so it's very little traveled uh, so like you so the, I, I whereas I grew up in an apartment with cars all over the place and 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 so it is it has been a really huge change in uh in in just a generation from from this sort of in a sense laissez faire to this kind of socialist paradise of parental over involvement that I think is is a real challenge and I, I I think it's great that you let her do it at four. Uh, I was surprised but uh, when I when I didn't compare that to my daughter who's 18 months old in my mind but I thought well when was I doing that kind of stuff it's like yeah that that's sort of about right that that seems seems about right and I think that kind of encouragement to go to go and explore and that trust uh, in the in the judgment of your children is so important and the other thing I don't want to sort of hijack what you're saying I want to get your feedback on this but I th- another thing that I was thinking about the other day is the degree to which conflict in a relationship diminishes proportional to the degree that both people in that relationship really, really like each other. Uh, I think, you know, when you think about crabby couples, you know, the Bickertons or whatever, it's always people who, you know, they just don't like each other very much. And because they don't like each other very much, they end up getting into all of these conflicts and trying to be one-upping and trying to prove the other person wrong and dominate and so on. And that sort of feeds the cycle. And I've really tried as a as a dad, and I wanted to know what your thoughts are on this. I've really tried as a dad, not not in a fake way, but, but to be somebody that my daughter really enjoys spending time with. Because that way, conflicts seem to be much less. I mean, because my wife and I love each other so much, we have very little conflict in our marriage. Because it's sort of like, what's the point? We like each other, so why, why, why would we fight? And to try and be somebody who brings a great deal of pleasure and happiness and security and fun uh, and giggles to my daughter means that, as you said, your daughter doesn't want to wander off because probably because she really likes spending time with you and and your your oh. wife and and her her uh, her sister. In the same way, I just don't find that I get into a lot of conflict with my daughter because she really enjoys my company, she really enjoys my wife's company, and so there just doesn't seem to be that level of conflict. And I think if you take that authoritarian finger wagging thing. I think you lose some of that, I mean, I don't want to say love, because love is kind of assumed, but, but liking, just really liking someone as an individual, I don't think is, can really coexist with that finger wagging authoritarian thing. And I, I, what are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, I agree. Um, I, I, think there are a couple of thoughts I have swimming around on that issue. Um, one is, um, I, I'm going to get the quote wrong, so I won't even try it, but there's a, there's a quote by Lazarus Long in Time Enough for Love by Robert Heinlein, where he talks about courtesy and, and um, and courtesy, especially towards one's wife, um, and it, it struck me. And, and one of the things I strive to do in my relationship with my wife is there is there's never a time that I should raise my voice at her, because you know she's she's in a relationship with me. I mean, really, we are we're one team. And um, when when there's a miscommunication, when somebody lets somebody else down, um, it's it's never productive to to yell at them. And um, so, treating people within my family with, if if I were to grade how courteous I am to people in general, I am the most courteous to the people within my family. And doesn't that and make the most the, sense?
0: It's, it's one of the great mysteries in life, while people who would never yell at a waiter at their boss will yell at family members, yes. as, if, as if the waiter or your boss has anything fundamental and substantial to do with your life happiness compared to the people in your family. If the people in your family are the bedrock of your life's happiness, the waiter that you yell at is not going to be there holding your hand when you're going into the great beyond at the end of your life. And so it's always astounded me that people can be incredibly polite. Uh, and good natured to strangers, and then can turn around and treat the people who really matter uh, with such poor standards so i'm I'm with you on that. I mean, to can't treat anyone yeah, better exactly. than your family
1: and, and so i I feel the same way about my kids. Um, I really I never yell at my kids um, I, I I try my best to reason with my kids. Um, now, of course, there's this the, the thing is is that kids rationality and reason and time preference is uh always developing uh as they age and uh it, as a result sometimes y- you think you might be making a knockdown argument and and it's not really a knockdown argument for them so um, it's uh it, it's a fun little struggle um i I was recently talking to my seven-year-old about the notion of time preference. Uh And, you know, we could just kind of summarize it in the sense of, um would you prefer one lollipop today or two lollipops tomorrow? Well, sometimes it's one lollipop right now. <laughs> so, um, tomorrow never comes, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. it's... Um, you know, another thing that I, I wanted to mention that we haven't really talked about, um, uh, like I said, I like this virtue approach, and uh, one of the important elements of virtue in an adult is uh, thrift. And the uh, th- there's actually a, a somewhat little-known libertarian by the name of Samuel Smiles that wrote a number of very important uh, books um, one of which is called self help and in fact it it more or less launched the self help uh, hmm. genre It was written in the eighteen fifties and it was um, it was really i mean you can argue that it's it's a blend between history and inspirational literature it's a it's a whole bunch of very short vignettes of about a page um of the story of um, the man who invented this machine or the man who founded this factory or the man who made his fortune in this trade and followed them from humble beginnings and talked about their thrift and about them saving and uh, you know persevering and, and making it and uh, he, he published several volumes over time uh one is called thrift uh one is i think titled perseverance um, and what's interesting is there's a there's a link there that many libertarians maybe tacitly recognize but maybe this is one of those thin versus thick libertarianism type things but um, the the notion that responsibility and personal responsibility in particular ties into, uh, specific virtues such as thrift. And, um, I recently kind of went through a revolution in, uh, personal thrift with my wife, uh, a few years ago. And we really got our finances in much better order than I ever thought they would be. And, uh, in terms of, having essentially no debt and uh, having a budget every month and really planning on how we were going to spend our money and where it goes and having a conscious plan. And once I'm able to do that, then I can teach my kids how to do that. And so I've done that. And and we have a lot of um, – I'm very proud of my younger daughter. My younger daughter, when she was six, decided she would get a cell phone. And uh, so I said, you want to get a cell phone? She said, yes, I've saved money because she gets a small allowance for doing various chores. And uh, we, we teach them that, you know, of their allowance, some of it has to go into the charity money. You know, they have a little giving. Uh, they, they have a three-sectioned... Um, piggy bank and so one section is for giving and one section is for saving and one section is for spending so saving is you know you kind of think about what you're going to buy and kind of make a plan to get there whereas spending is you just pick it up and go get something from the ice cream man mm. and uh, she had she had saved her money and she bought a pay-as-you-go cell phone and a, a card with minutes Wow. And I said, you know, if you can, if you can buy it, then you can have it. And, uh, she had lots of fun calling people and texting people and then it ran out of minutes and she didn't have any money left. <laughs> so it was a very, uh, interesting, um, lesson for her to learn. That is
0: fascinating. Uh, yeah. But
1: I was, I was very glad that she, uh, went through that and of course she still has her phone and, Every once in a while, she'll buy a few minutes, and now she's a little bit more careful with the minutes she uses, and so forth. Have you?
0: um, I just wanted uh, to ask another question. As um, one of those crazy black-suited bomb-throwing anarchists, um, have you had any challenges with um, uh, playdates and uh, political conversations, or other kinds of philosophical conversations that other parents may? enter into? I mean, how do you, because my daughter's just starting to do play dates and stuff like that, and I mean, nothing's come up as yet, because uh, I can do small talk, like like with the best of them, but uh, have you had any situations, or, or how did you handle situations with other parents where uh, significant differences in ideologies come up, because obviously you're not exactly uh, mainstream in, in your belief system?
1: Yeah, um, I I guess to say that um, that never really came up as an issue. Yeah. Um,
0: Good, so you know, part it may be a minefield that's more in my head than in my future, but I just was curious what it would like a little further down yeah, the Yeah, you know,
1: I, I think uh, a part of that is that, you know, I'm I'm the primary breadwinner at, at the house, and when there were playdates for my kids when they were younger, it was usually my wife that would go. Yeah, it will be um, me, because I'm the stay-at-home, so, yeah. Yeah, well, now, and then there's the other thing, is that my wife is, of course, also a, an anarchist, I think, um, <laughs> we, <laughs> you she's know, such you an anarchist that. that you
0: can't even put that label on her. That's I, how, that's yeah, how you know, she really I, is. I, I don't,
1: I don't, uh, I don't know what she put on her Facebook political, I know that it doesn't say libertarian or anarchist. It says something though.
0: Right. Um,
1: but she's sufficiently libertarian that, uh, it's really of no consequence, but, um it, you know, we share stories with one another, but they, they don't usually happen in the context of, of kids.
0: Good. Um, okay, good. That's not that so much to worry about then. Yeah.
1: Good. Now, do you have any other, We uh, want to be
0: mindful of your time, do you have any other final tips, uh, I guess, for me, selfishly, and also for other people? I mean, you have daughters who are considerably older than my daughter. Um, if you had to give me uh, a couple of tips for, for things to watch out for, um, Uh, In the future, uh, is there anything that that floats your mind as as, uh, good uh, good road signs to follow?
1: Um, (laughs) I I certainly don't consider myself an expert on parenting, but... um, Certainly more of an expert on parenting
0: daughters than I am at the moment, so I'm willing to... Okay,
1: well, yeah, a couple of years on you, right? Um, I'd say... um, I I think I would kind of redouble my, my... my suggestions on on reading and discussing with kids the um, uh, stories of uh, things like Aesop's fables and Bible stories you know i'm I, I'm not a man of Christian faith, but um, but I think the Bible stories in particular are, are very useful to discuss uh, not not just for the moral content but also it's a it's a trove of of stories that are often alluded to in in other literature so it it forms a foundation of
0: yeah, it's a, it's a cultural touchstone for culture. sure for sure
1: exactly so uh, I I've gotten a lot of traction from that I I have a, a set of um i have the odyssey and i have uh beowulf that i've read to my 7 year old um, there's a there's an adaptation that they have out by it's the same people who do the it's the kingfisher uh people who do like the kingfisher encyclopedias and such and they have the odyssey and the iliad and uh beowulf and robin hood Arthur, King Arthur, and the Knights of the Round Table—these uh, sorts of stories. That it's it's nice that they have these versions because they're long enough that they can be read over, uh, you know, many many nights of going to bed. Um, but they're not dumbed down to the the cartoon level. They're 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 real literature, but they're accessible to the young. Um, so. I, I remember reading on the classical method of education and, uh, they recommend, uh, or the, the trivium method is to, uh, take kids through three cycles of history. Uh, that is they, they cover the entire sweep of history from, um, I don't know, from Homer erectus to modern days. And, uh, and you, you do that over a four period four year cycle. You do it for four years, and then you do it again. And each time you do it, they they gain more knowledge about history. And you do the same sorts of things with key pieces of literature, like the Odyssey or the Iliad, uh, where you expose them at a young age to um, an adapted form. And then uh, when they get to be a teenager, um, they will have already seen it. And so, when they read the Odyssey um, in modern translation, then they know what they're expecting to see, and they can focus more on the literature than on the than on the mechanics of the story. And and they'll pick up nuances because then they'll start seeing foreshadowing and so forth because they know the basic outline of the story. And then that prepares them for college when they read it in Greek, of course.
0: That's right. No, I, I think that's a good idea. I certainly, I, I certainly found that my daughter is having trouble concentrating on some of the more esoteric passages of John Galt's speech in Atlas Shrugged. Um, yes, it's strange. Her, yeah. But, uh, what I find is I if I just feed her enough baby is she does sort of gain the ability to focus uh, on something uh, or just stare fixedly at the book. But uh, maybe I'll get the um, the uh, the. Uh, Abridged version for for that, but uh, well, listen. I wanted to give you the chance as well uh, because I know that you have a web presence to to let my listeners know uh, about uh, places where your uh, works can be found uh, and enjoyed. You uh, you say you you have you have articles. I think you said on Lou Rockwell uh, um, on Strike yes. the Roots on is it was antiwar as well. Uh,
1: no, anti-state.com.
0: Anti-state.com. And, if that's right.
1: Yeah, and uh, mises.org and um, and my little piddly. Google Sites website uh, is where I have all of my research papers. Well, so, I'll put uh, uh,
0: I'll, I'll dig up those links and I'll put them down. I think that you're somebody well worth reading, and I certainly would recommend uh, your your writings to to my listeners. And I really, really wanted to thank you for taking the time for this. Uh, I'm really, really interested in talking to libertarian parents. I mean, it's useful to me, but I also find that I'm getting a lot of positive feedback. Uh, from people who, uh, uh, and some negative feedback. And the negative feedback is, why the hell weren't these shows out 25 years ago when I was parenting and told my kids how great the government <laughs> was? But that's okay. You know, all, all progress yeah. is, is uh, a bit of a spit in the eye to the elder generation, whether you like it or not. So sure. I really appreciate you taking the time and, and uh, have yourself a great, great evening.
1: My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.